Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, we're going to hear the fourth on five views of the Exodus, and this time we're going to hear from Dr. Jim Hoffmeyer, and he's going to present the case for a 13th century Exodus from Egypt. So I hope you enjoy this. This is an area of expertise for Jim, and so he's written quite a bit in this area, so I think you'll enjoy this episode. And as always, uh, please give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to uh, this episode. We'd appreciate that. And also, if you'd like to contribute to what we're doing here financially, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. And you can go to onscript.study and listen to um, our other podcast called Onscript, and that features interviews with scholars about their work in biblical studies and theology. Have a, a listen if you've never heard that podcast, and uh, enjoy this episode. Welcome back to On Script, the Biblical World podcast. Uh, today we have uh, the, the great pleasure of uh, having a discussion about the Egyptian exodus, the exodus from Egypt. Uh, we're joined by my co-host, Mark Jansen. Uh, and Mark has uh, recently published a, a brand new book that presents a variety of different perspectives on uh, the Exodus, its historicity, its archaeological background, or lack thereof. And this series that we're going to be running here on the, on the podcast uh, is going to develop each one of these different uh, each one of these different uh, theories. I did mention it, but I'm Chris McKinney, your your host, uh, and Mark Jansen is again my co-host. And I'm going to let Mark kind of introduce the book a bit, and then also introduce our um, our guest today, Jim Hoffmeyer. All right, thanks, Chris. So the book is called Five Views on the Exodus, and in it we examine the historicity, the chronology, the theological implications, and really just the importance of the narrative in general, with five different experts who all have different views. Some are more similar to each other than others, but they all uh, get space to argue for their view, and then they actually go back and forth a bit as each author responds to the other initial author of that chapter, and then the original author of the chapter gets the final say sort of within that chapter, and we move on to the next view. So the idea is to give uh, an audience you know, a, a ton of data on what exactly is going on in the archaeology and in the textual record and what scholars are saying, but try to also write it in a way that is appealing to a broader audience, and then also let them see that there's a bit of a debate here, uh, as I think a lot of our blogs and and vlogs, right? They kind of simplify it and make it seem, uh, a, a t they present a different picture than what scholarship would really say about the Exodus. Right. And it's, it's a great series. I've used it in the past for, uh, for some of these different, different big questions uh, about theology and history. And, and it's, it's a really a nice resource. So I was really glad that you were working on this for, uh, for the Exodus, because of, of course, this is of a particular interest uh, to the work that we've done in the past, and so it, it's it's a it sounds like a wonderful project. Yeah, it's in the Zondervan Counterpoint series, which has done a whole bunch of stuff. Um, probably people who are probably interested in the Exodus one would also be interested to know there's like one on the creation and everything like that, like Genesis, early Genesis. So um, that was kind of 
the idea behind it. I read that and thought, oh, we should do one for the Exodus, right? So um, we are privileged today, like you said earlier, to be joined by James Hoffmeyer, who is the Emeritus Professor of Old Testament and Ancient Near East History and Archaeology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, full disclosure, I actually took several classes with him. He was my uh, main professor when I was getting my master's, so he started me on this career path that I'm on, but he is an Egyptologist and archaeologist who's written numerous articles and books, I would say, really defending the historicity of the Exodus overall. And I, probably his uh, most famous work on that would be Israel and Egypt, and he also is the director of excavations at Tel Borg in uh, northern Sinai. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you guys. So wh- what what really wanted to do here is just kind of get you guys started just giving us your overall view on the Exodus, sort of the evidence behind your reasoning, and, and really kind of just go through your view that is presented in the book. Sure. Well... What I've tried to do in the book and what, if you mean the new Five Views book, which is very similar to what I did in two of my other books, one is Israel and Egypt, and the other one's Ancient Israel and Sinai. Uh, so some of that material is is carried over into the new, new book. But uh, basically what I've tried to do is to provide the contextual or background information as best we can to get a picture of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Uh, I think everyone will admit that there's no direct evidence uh, for Israel in Egypt, uh, and there's no uh, direct evidence of the Exodus. There's no inscription that says Moses slept here, and the sort of things that might prove uh, the book of Exodus to be historically reliable. So uh, what I do is go for what I call the secondary evidence. So we pursue things like the the geographical place names uh, that are mentioned in the book of the Exodus. Do these fit the geography of Egypt? And in what period do they best fit the geography of Egypt? The plagues, things that uh, of that nature uh, have a particular Nile Valley characteristic to them. And so looking at those in the light of this kind of phenomenon that occur in the Nile Valley and in the desert surrounding environment, um, those are the kind of things that one can do to help flesh things out. Um, we can look at uh, perhaps one of the most important things would be the mention in uh, Genesis through the book of Numbers, five times a reference to a place called Ramesses. And in Exodus 1.11, the Israelites are making bricks for storage facilities uh, for this place called Ramses. And we can look into both the archaeology and the textual background of that and note that there's only one city ever called Ramses built in Egypt, and that was during the reign of Ramses the Great from 1279 to 1213. And probably early in his reign, he started building that. So let's say around 1270 BC or thereabouts, 1275. And by about 1130 BC, the city was abandoned. And um, the reason for that abandonment was due to the Nile in the course of those years, suddenly a lower uh, f- uh, flood uh, sequence occurred and the amount of water flowing through the Nile dropped dramatically and this led to silting and the the course of the Nile shifted 
to another branch and the uh, city of Ramses was cut off. And so it was abandoned. So it has a very specific history. And that's the kind of background information one can look at both archaeology and geology and say, okay, there's a place called Ramses. Um, people writing uh, 500 years later uh, probably didn't know about that place. It was long out of existence. So those are the kind of things uh, I try to do in, in this book and in my work in general. Yeah, so for them to get that city right, to know the name of it, have it in the right basic area, would suggest that they have an authentic experience with it. Because because by the time they write it, if they write it really late, which I know you don't necessarily agree with that either, you have to explain why they got that city right. Correct. And that, that was simply, that was my point. As, as many critical scholars want to date the Exodus narratives to a much later period of time, the exilic or post-exilic period, it makes very little sense for a... Uh, a community who's hearing the story uh, being read to them in the synagogues and so on to uh, be talking about a place in Egypt with such uh, detailed Egyptian contextual information when they're living in a Persian world. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that helps, I think, locate the events, not only to Egypt, but to a time uh, not too far after the exodus took place, where the people could resonate with that information. Centuries, centuries later, uh, would be uh, no longer uh, resonate with them. Right. They'd probably use Tanis or something more familiar in that as a city in that area right. at that the, time. Yeah. What you're what you're alluding to is, is Psalm 78, when the psalmist is reflecting on the exodus and the plagues and how God. Uh, brought about signs and wonders that led to the Exodus, the uh, psalmist refers to where this took place as the fields of Zoan in Hebrew, or Tanis, which is the Greek vocalization. And everybody knows Tanis, that's where Indiana Jones went to find the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> but that was the principal city that grew up in the shadows of of Ramses about 12 miles to the north. So when the psalmist wrote, the city of Ramses clearly didn't exist. And so he mentions the place as the fields of Tanis, the area around Tanis, which would have included uh, the land of Ramses of earlier times. Right. So we have this, this great reference to city of Ramses, a very you know, tantalizing reference. Um, what, what would you say are some of the other really strong sort of Egyptianisms? I remember one time you had told me as you kind of led this interview with too, that people are looking for Israelites in Egypt and you decided that you would kind of flip it and look for Egyptianisms, for lack of a better word, in the biblical narrative. What are some of the other more compelling ones? Sure. Um, the uh, story about Moses uh, and the basket being placed in the waters of the Nile and so on, biblical scholars, uh, Near Eastern uh literature specialists have noted for for well over a century that the story of Moses' birth and being placed in the basket uh, fared uh, very nicely compared to the myth of Sargon, Sargon the Great, who was ruler of, of uh, Mesopotamia back around 2300 BC. And this story of his uh, was flourishing in the 7th, uh, 7th and 8th century in Mesopotamia. 
And so it has some of the same elements. Baby's put in a basket, floats down the river, pulled out by the goddess, not a princess, and she rears him and becomes his son, and then later he becomes the king. And so people say, oh, this is this is classic case of a literary motif that is borrowed by the biblical writers and applied to their hero, Moses. When I look at it through my Egyptological lenses, that uh, verse in, in Exodus 2, uh, I noted that there are, are six words that are in that short verse that are uh, either of Egyptian origin or were used in Egypt uh, during the period of, of the Exodus. So, for instance, it, when it says the Nile, it's the actual Egyptian word for Nile. It's not a generic word for a river, but it's the specific Egyptian word for river. Um, the, the word for the marsh plants that grow around it, uh, uh, suf is also the Egyptian word for these water plants and so on. So you have all these, uh, clear Egyptian terminology in this story that, again, critics of the Bible would say, well, this is clearly a Mesopotamian story, but there really is nothing of the local coloring of the story that's Mesopotamian. It's purely Egyptian. Yeah, and I always thought the logic is curious. This is sort of philosophical, I suppose, but just because there's a legendary birth story, it does not follow that the figure must be fictitious. I mean, no one would claim Sargon was fiction. And I think it's kind of curious that for some, this parallel means we can't trust the Bible's account of Moses' birth, and therefore he must not be historical, Because it, but, but no one would actually say that about Sargon. So I just find it a sort of curious sort of starting point some people use anyway. No, you're 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 spot on. Um, uh, most people who use the word legend um, recognize that behind the legend is a real person, maybe a real story that's been embellished over the course of time. Um, but you cannot use, even if one were to agree, it's a legendary story that it's still about a historical figure. In the case of uh, biblical scholarship, there's a tendency to say, well, it's a legendary story, and therefore the, the character is not uh, historical. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's sort of two sets of rules when you're playing uh, the game. One set of rules applied to biblical uh, literature and others to ancient Near Eastern literature. I tried to keep the ground rules the same, whether I'm dealing with one set of literature uh, that is Hebrew or Babylonian or Egyptian. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Can I, can I can I jump in just real quick? Sure. Um, you know, it's really interesting you make this point about the the Sargon the Sargon myth, and just looking into it in in general, most people connect it with uh, you know the seventh century literature that that's from the Ashurbanipal um, library in in Nineveh, but that's just the latest expression of that particular myth. And if you go back to uh, earlier in the middle and to the earlier part of the second millennium. BC, there is pretty clear uh, precursors to the birth of Sargon in these legendary texts being uh, very important and significant. The problem is, is that the sources that we have are broken right where you would may, maybe have some of the further adaptions of uh, the parallels that we see so nicely in a seventh century edition. And so the, the, the point is, is that we only have the latest expression of this myth in the seventh century, and as we can talk about the same types of things with something like Enuma Elish, 
where likely it was in the 18th century that we have the founding of this being a very important myth, but our latest additions don't date to, uh, only date to the Neo-Assyrian period. And so the point is, whether it's, uh, and, and I, I would tend to agree with, with the Egyptian connection, but it could even be that this these stories are out there within the wider ancient Near East, in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, and the Bible is you know, just an, another one of these examples. Um, changing gears for just a second, um, there's also been, of course, a lot made of the rest of the details we get about Moses' life, especially, I wonder, Jim, if you could touch on sort of the, the believability of him being rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and growing up in the court. I mean, a lot of people initially think, oh, he's a foreigner. How could this, you know, actually take place? Well, the Bible presents Moses as being a part of the Hebrew sojourning community. And um, we do know that in Egypt, there was from roughly the 17th century on a significant uh, population of Semitic speaking peoples who'd come down from Canaan and maybe Syria and were living in the, the Delta of Egypt and uh, historically, they've been referred to as the Hyksos, those foreign rulers who dominated Egypt for maybe 125 years, down to about 525 BC, and they were booted out by uh, kings from southern Egypt, the uh, King Ahmose being the uh, one who, after his brother and father um, fought against the Hyksos, he's the one who finally succeeded in expelling them. Uh, which, by the way, would present, in my mind, a very good uh, scenario of what's going on in Exodus 1, that there's a, a new pharaoh who does not know Joseph, that there's been a change in regime, a change in rulership, not just one king following another, but a whole different dynasty from a different part of Egypt who may not have known about the role that Joseph had played, uh, you know, 7,500 years earlier. So, uh, yes, we do have this uh, foreign population. Then during the 15th century BC, Egypt launched its uh, empire into uh, Canaan and Syria, all the way across the Euphrates River. And what they did was to bring back uh, many prisoners of war, thousands of prisoners of war, and in particular, they uh, practice under Thutmosis III, who ruled starting around uh, 1470 BC. And Thutmosis III uh, implemented, maybe initiated, the practice of selecting the princes of the small kinglets in Canaan. Again, bear in mind that the, the, the land of Canaan was not ruled by a single king that ruled the land of Canaan. It is, appears much like it does in the book of Joshua, where you have all these little city-states with their own kings. And that's the way it was in the in the 15th and 16th century, too. And um, in order to uh, get loyal vassals on Pharaoh's side, he would take these young princes back to Egypt, have them educated in Egyptian ways and languages. And then when the father died, the prince who had been trained in Egypt would be sent back to Megiddo or Jerusalem. In fact, the king of Jerusalem in the 14th century said it was not his father that put him on the throne in Jerusalem. It was the hand of Pharaoh. The arm of Pharaoh put him on the throne. So he was the, the name Abduhiba was one such person. He was a Semite trained in Egypt in the Egyptian court, sent back to be a king in his own land. 
so it's very conceivable that someone like Moses could well have uh, received a similar treatment, uh, upbringing, education, with the intent of having some sort of leadership or administrative role within his community, that being the Hebrew sojourn community. And uh, so this makes very good sense. We have uh, one such person whose tomb was only discovered in the 1980s at the necropolis at Saqqara. Uh, his name is Aper El, or Abed El. It's been read variously, but I think it's Aper. Uh, a Semitic name with the element El, God, on it. And um, his tomb uh, reveals him to be dressed uh, completely in Egyptian attire. And in fact, he was the prime minister of northern Egypt under the pharaoh Akhenaten, uh, the famous sun-worshipping king. So, uh, Aper El uh, tells us, among other things, in his tomb that he was a child of the royal nursery. That is, he had been educated and trained in the royal nursery, and he was elevated to a position uh, and, and in the 15th, 16th, 15th, and uh, maybe into the 14th century, Egypt had basically two prime ministers, not one, one in the north, one in the south, and Upper El was the northern uh, prime minister under Akhenaten. And so yet he is a foreigner, and but an Egyptianized foreigner, and we recognize in the story of Joseph how he was Egyptianized to the point that he could speak Egyptian and his brothers didn't know because they could only speak Hebrew. Moses was obviously uh, presented uh, to us as bilingual. And uh, so uh, if you think about it, he if he had been given the opportunity to be educated in this facility, he would learn would have known Egyptian and, of course, his mother language, which he would have learned from his family and would have been thoroughly bilingual. And so for him to be in, in this position of importance for his own community would be in keeping with the sort of things going on in New Kingdom Egypt with foreign princes. Yeah, it's super interesting because for both Moses's upbringing and Joseph's ultimate rank, the tomb of Aparel can't prove it, but it does show that it's not too good to be true, that it's that it is possible for a foreigner to have these kind of benefits, and in Joseph's case, even the rank, uh, because there is a precedent. So I think, you know, this idea that it's all overly romantic and all these kind of things when it comes to Joseph, Aparel's tomb really starts to, to help us sort of question that sort of really old idea about Joseph. Right. And then um, there was uh, just, uh, I think in 2018, uh, Egyptian um, archaeologist uh, Dr. Ola Al-Ghazi uh, discovered a tomb at Saqqara, uh, and it turns out this is uh, from the time of Ramses II, and it's a general, and he too has a Semitic name. So here you have a, mm -hmm. a general uh, in the army who uh, has a foreign name, and yet he has a tomb in Egypt um, mm. that isn't isn't uh, buried like a, a foreigner. He's buried like a an Egyptian. So have scholars sort of ironically been fooled by Egyptian royal ideology on foreigners all this time, and that we're seeing this hard evidence of foreigners reaching pretty high up in society? Yes. Well, I think the Egyptians were pragmatic, uh, mm. and in order to rule their empire well, this was a particular strategy that was used for how to deal with these foreign uh, powers, especially in the period roughly, say, from 1500 down to about 1300, uh, try to use the locally 
local princes who were trained and loyal to Egypt to run things rather than have the expense of a huge uh, administrative structure. Uh, the Egyptians did follow that plan, which is more of a colonial model of organizing or ordering their empire in, this, in what is today Sudan and Nubia. They had a much, much more infrastructure. They had much more administrative levels of bureaucracy and relied, did not rely on the foreign princes. So this was more, uh, I think, a difference in, in social ordering of Nubian, which is a more tribal society, than Canaan, which was more a uh, combination of urban and uh, agricultural society. Yeah, that's... Um... It's really interesting, too, the idea that they, they train up a prince and send him back. So they get someone who knows how to do things the Egyptian way and is loyal to Egypt. But the locals, in a sense, get one of their own that they're sort of answering directly to. So it's almost doubly clever. Well, the other thing is, again, this is uh, when we get down to the end of Old Testament history. Uh, in the book of Daniel, remember that Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon with that same idea in mind to be trained in in the Chaldean language and Babylonian culture and with the intent of them being administrators. And of course, Daniel uh, moved up very nicely in, in, in that system. So um, it, this is a, an age-old age strategy for uh, controlling an empire. Back in the 1960s and 70s, I remember uh, reading that the Russians, when they had after they had invaded Afghanistan, were taking the uh, plane load of the teenage sons of well-established Afghan families back to Moscow to be educated and learn Russian and and Russian ways of doing things, and then they were going to be brought back to administer Afghanistan for them. So that strategy has been used in our own time too. I guess some things never change, right? <laughs> if it worked in the past, it probably a good chance it'll work now too. There you go. Um, so one of the other, I guess you could say, points of contention and debate within our book is just the, simply the dating of the Exodus. I wonder if you could walk us through um, your view on when it took place and what the reasons for that are. Yeah, my, my um, priority in the last 20 years and more of working on this subject is, is basically to try to um, demonstrate that the, ex, the sojourn in Exodus happened. For me, the dating is of secondary value. It's interesting. As a historian, that kind of thing interests me. Uh, but far more important is that it did happen. So if I can just take a little excursus, uh, and I'll come back to, to your question. I consider the, um, the Exodus from Egypt, the sojourn, the exodus from Egypt, as, as a collective series of events, to be the best documented event from ancient history. Um, if you think about it, uh, we have great battles by Thutmosis III, we have great battles by Ramses II, and you can talk about half a dozen, six, eight different sources for these battles. Uh, for Thutmosis III's Battle of Megiddo, there are probably nine or ten different sources from official royal inscriptions to biographical texts of people saying, hey, I went along with the king on his campaign, that sort of thing. But if you think about it, and the problem is that the Bible is the Bible. And because of what I call anti-religious bigotry, uh, the Bible is treated in a different way. It's not... Uh, 
treated uh, as fairly and objectively. But if you look at all the attestations or references in the Old Testament to the Exodus, it's, it's, they surpass 200. And they come from all kinds of different uh, locations. So it's not just uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, the book of Genesis anticipates it. Um, the book of Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the laws of the Old Testament, for instance, intertwine the story of their sojourn in Exodus into religious practices. Uh, so, for instance, you don't treat sojourners or aliens in a bad way because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Now, that's a, a law that occurs several times in the Bible, maybe up to a half dozen times or five, six times. And when you look at other ancient Near Eastern laws, the Code of Hammurabi, Lipit Ishtar, Urnamu, all these different uh, law codes and reforms, never do you have any what you call case law where a law is introduced that is tied to a historical event. This is uniquely a biblical practice. In other words, it's their experience in Egypt having been poorly treated as people who had been invited into the land, given permission to live there, and then they were turned upon. And so the Israelites, likewise, are not supposed to say, hey, yes, yeah, you can come work in my fields, you can do this job for me, and now I can abuse you. And so it's those sort of things that, that make you realize the Exodus, uh, the sojourn Exodus is so interwoven into the fabric of who Israel is from their annual celebrations. We're about to celebrate Passover, um, the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. They build uh, little huts to remind them of, of the Exodus uh, period. Um, the fact that manna, however that was uh, produced or provided, uh, they have a bowl of manna in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant in later history. Uh, the serpent that was in the wilderness becomes an object that's taken into the temple that's referred to in Hezekiah's day. So you have all these later objects and reminders of this event. So for me, it's hard to believe that it didn't exist. Uh, so I don't want to be nasty, but it's almost as if Exodus deniers are like Holocaust deniers. There's an agenda. They're trying to revise history for some nefarious reason. I'm not sure why. Um, there's another school of thought, uh, which is represented in in the book you edited, which is called deals with cultural memory, where there are sort of these vague memories of things that happened. And so there probably was something back there that happened, but we really can't say very much about it. Um, Again, I find that hard to believe based on, if you look at the number of psalms, like Psalm 78 uh, was mentioned earlier in other psalms, that celebrate the, the, the victories uh, over the Egyptians, the provision in the wilderness, and all those things are a part of their hymnody. They sung it, uh, and so on. So when you look at all that material together, all that biblical witness, you have many, many, many different witnesses and different kinds of evidence. Um, so because of that, I think uh, it's pretty inescapable that there was some sort of uh, group of Hebrews who lived in Egypt, who left Egypt. And then the question, of course, is when did that happen? Um, the main two approaches to this question and where the disagreement exists between, and here I'm thinking primarily of, of scholars who believe the Bible, the, the one is to begin with 
the reference in Exodus, uh, sorry, the reference in 1 Kings 6, 1, that Solomon commenced building his temple on the 480th anniversary of the Exodus from Egypt. And if you work back from that date of 967 BC, you end up at 1447 BC. And then what people try to do is then, okay, how does that fit into Egyptian history and who's the Pharaoh and all that sort of stuff. The problem, of course, is that in 1447, there was no city called Ramesses, uh, as far as we know. Ramesses the second is not the first Ramses. His grandfather was Ramses, but he only he only ruled for 14 months, not long enough to build a city, and it was only been 15 years earlier anyway. So um, there was no city Ramses. There was no King Ramses earlier on to build a city and name it after him. So uh, what I propose doing in terms of dating is starting with the book of Exodus. Rather than going outside of the book of Exodus and dating it based on other information, start with the book of Exodus. Where does that take us? Uh, what If we just have the book of Exodus, where do we date the Exodus based on the information it provides? And then you go look at the other materials and say, okay, does this square? Or are these other references, like the Book of Kings, making a different kind of statement than a chronological statement? Um, and so that's why uh, scholars who both equally believe in the biblical text as, as being historical and authoritative uh, can look at these two texts and come to different conclusions. So uh, I, I feel it's easier to... Uh, work with the, the data in the book of Exodus uh, than to start with a text uh, from 600 years after the Exodus or or, or 700 year, uh, 500 years after the Exodus as my starting point. Start with the book of Exodus. What does it tell us? How, does, how do we flesh that out? So methodologically, those are the two uh, approaches. And each side then has to say, okay, I start here. Now, how do I deal with your passage that nukes mine and how does uh how do i deal with one and 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 treat your passage and so that's that's where the debate lies and between at least uh several of the authors in 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 your book right and that's the classic uh you know do we touch the archaeology or are we going to take the number 480 literally versus symbolically and of course plenty more of that in the book chris i think you had some some fun questions you wanted to Run by yeah, our now, guest now here. That, now that we invited a little bit of controversy, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll ask a, a few uh, a few kind of um, fun questions. Let's say. What, although I will add one thing, just just to that point. Um, even if we think about the way we calculate years in the Bible, we often will do um, just simple mathematics to get from one date to the next. But actually, if it's talking about years, the biblical year is lunar. So there's even a calculation that's not often made in how you would get to a much lesser number. So we're like something like 480 years would be like 10 years less or so in the way that you count it according to the biblical calendar. And, and I don't even see that as, 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 as something that's normally looked at, but well, I'll put a pin in that for now. Uh, I'll put a pin in that for now. Um, so I got, I got some, some questions for you. These are very, very important questions. Um, since you're an excavator, uh, and you've, you've, you've been to Tel Borg and many different excavation projects over the years, most important question, when you wake up early in the morning, are you, are you drinking energy drink, coffee, or tea? 
or nothing? Well, uh, coffee doesn't work with me the way it does with other people. Uh, so typically on the day, I, I, may, I might drink coffee or I might drink tea, but the most important thing is because we're going to be working out in the sun, uh, we're not like those sissy archaeologists in Israel that work under tents. Um, <laughs> we, we work in the open sun in the middle of the desert. Uh, I drink a lot of water to get hydrated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense, and, and I will stick with my shades. I like uh, the that, idea, that, that, but I said we don't do it in Egypt. <laughs> we just gut it out. It sounds like you're jealous. <laughs> okay, next question. First thing that pops into your head when you hear the words Indiana Jones? Fun. Fun. I, I like it. I like it. Um, what is the biggest current debate in Egyptology? Debate? in Egyptology. I don't know that there is a really big debate. Um, one thing that I've been, uh, one, I, I guess, uh, and, and since Mark, Mark works in this field too, he might have a, an idea, but I'd, I'd like to hear his answer to that. But one of the things that's being debated is the nature of the end of the Old Kingdom. Uh, whether the old kingdom uh, came about due to political or economic collapse, or did the old kingdom really end? Uh, and uh, there are different theories afloat. Uh, a Czechoslovakian scholar, or Czech, I should say, scholar, um, Miroslav Barta, has a very interesting view about uh, disequilibrium theories, and I, I don't know what. But uh, so that's something that's that's. Um, at least been discussed uh, lately. Um, there are a few little chronological debates within Egyptology because there are some darker ages. The older you get in Egypt, the harder it is to pin dates down with certainty. Um, I, uh, the period roughly from 1500 on is pretty well established. Uh, the period of the Middle Kingdom, 2000 to about 1700, is pretty well uh, established. There are some periods where we're not quite sure if kings were reigning consecutively or concurrently, and that can uh, affect chronology a little bit, but not in any major way. But so I think those kind of debates will will always be at work. But uh, I'm interested, Mark, if you have a have a an, an answer. Yeah, to that. Um, that's definitely a good one. Into the Old Kingdom is certainly one. I would say on a smaller level the immediate successors of Akhenaten, who and how many, um, is, that's, a, that's one that we'll probably never really get a good answer on at this rate. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah the, it, it's interesting that there are certain parts of Egyptology that people naturally gravitate to, and the period of Akhenaten, uh, his religion, uh, was he a monotheist, was he not? I wouldn't say that's hotly debated, but there are differences of opinion. And uh, you're right. Uh, the, his death, who ruled after him, was his wife. Uh, mm. Did she reign independently, Nefertiti? Did he? Um, who is the father and mother of Tutankhamun? Those are still debated and so on. I think it's a great question and actually kind of important to put in the frame of the in the uh, in frame it into a conversation on the Exodus too because Egyptologists have been fairly hesitant I think overall to really weigh in on the Exodus much part of that's probably political hot topic 
controversial topic. But another reason is Egyptologists, we have so much data of our own still to figure out that I think some of them feel like, well, we don't really need to go be all that interdisciplinary at the moment until we sort out some of these things. I mean, obviously there are plenty who do do uh, study other things, but there's still enough debates within Egyptology. And the other thing uh, on a more big picture meta level is propaganda and how much to trust the sources as you get. I mean, you even have people saying everything at Medina Habu is just fiction, right, in the sea people. And it's like, wow, that's really a, a pretty outrageous stance. But I think in the big picture, there's so much suspicion about royal ideology that that becomes a debate, even if it's not really overtly debated. It seems to affect a lot of conversations, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think part of that is the influence of postmodern skepticism. We used to have to deal with modern skepticism, but Egyptology sort of danced past a lot of that. But I think it's finally uh, postmodernism is is uh, a new layer of suspicion on ancient texts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's just part of being a good historian is to look for collaborative evidence, and you don't just trust you know the Abydos King list, which is of course highly edited, editing out the Amarna period. So we, we can see kind of the reasoning, but I think sometimes it's just done without any real explanation given. So um, if we go back to the Exodus for just one more Exodus question and then a, a couple more to kind of wrap up. Um, we touched on Passover a little bit. What what do you think is the theological importance of the Exodus for, for Christians and for Jewish believers too, for that matter? I mean, why does it matter that we sort of debate the historicity of it, is another way I can put it? Yeah, well, I think, uh, without a doubt, the the Exodus event is the salvific event of Old Testament history, Old Testament theology. Uh, and it so it really is the foundation for Israelite faith. Uh, in later history, for instance, as the Jews are going into the Babylonian captivity, you see this in Jeremiah, where God says, well, in the future, you you will no longer say the Lord who brought us out of Egypt, X, Y, Z, but it's the Lord who brought us out of Babylon back to our home. Um, and so the point was that uh, uh, up until that time, the, the focus was always back on the God who saved them from Egypt uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And of course, they were to celebrate Passover as a annual, perennial, uh, ongoing celebration. That was command in the book of Exodus. Um, so uh, clearly it's the foundation of Israel's faith. It is because of that event that God could say in Exodus chapter 20, when giving the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the law start. In other words, you have uh, an obligation to me as your savior to do these things that I expect you as the community of faith. So there's a link between the laws and how the Israelites were to live their lives and the God who uh, saved them out of Egypt. So that's number one, uh, that you have that foundation of faith and the close link to the uh, covenant uh, uh, made at Mount Sinai. So um, that that's the most important foundational thing. And of course, then for for the Christian, the way the the uh, death of Jesus, as Paul calls him, our Passover lamb, happens at Passover. Uh, it, you might remember how how the uh, 
authorities in Jerusalem were trying to avoid any calamity that might come up in connection with Passover. They wanted to wait. They wanted to deal with Jesus, but they didn't want it to happen at, at, at Passover time um, because of you have a great crowd. So he was popular. We don't want to cause any problem. Let's do it more quietly. But it's interesting that it did happen, uh, uh, that his death would occur at, the, uh, it, it, at roughly the same time as the slaying of the Passover lamb. So there is in, um, in the death of Christ a clear connection to the death of the Passover, Passover lamb uh, in the book of Exodus. So I think it's, there, there is a, a continuity and a discontinuity between Old Testament theology and New Testament theology at that point, where uh, just as the people of Israel would look back on the Exodus as their salvation event uh, connected to Passover, Christians look back to the Good Friday Easter event that would have happened in the same week as Passover. So clearly there is a very strong connection, which should have been a, a, a very easy way for Jewish believers in the first century to segue into Christianity. It's not that they're getting rid of their old traditions. It's now be, they're being reinterpreted in the light of uh, God's new salvific act. All right. Uh, I thought at this point we might give you the chance to inform our, re- or our, our listeners about any other projects you've got in the works. I know you've got a revised edition a second edition, I guess, of Israel and Egypt coming out, and maybe your uh, your your new project in the Sudan there as well. Well, I'm I'm very busy. I uh, uh, I'm retired, but uh, I was talking to one of my former students today, and he wanted to know if I'm relaxing and taking it easy. I says, "Yes, <laughs> I'm I'm doing research and writing for me. That is relaxing and taking it easy." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Scholars never retire, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I've just finished up um, a book on the prophets, and that'll be out in October. And I've spent the last month working on all the illustrations, nearly 300 images. Um, So that's coming out. Um, uh, I am working on a second edition of the uh, Israel and Egypt book, which is very exciting because in the last 25 years since it was written... Uh, a lot has happened. Uh, some of the archaeological sites I talked about in in uh, Israel and Egypt are now being excavated or have been over for the last 10, 15 years. And so we do have some new information uh, to bring to the table. So that's underway. I have a on the table, but uh, it got coveted out, as I say, is uh, working on the pyramid complex of Taharka, the the king who's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, the Cushite or Nubian king. Um, So not sure if uh, that'll happen in 2022 or not, or late 2021, but um, I'm scheduled to be a part of of that project. Uh, So uh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. And um, has that site been uh, excavated and examined in the past? Yes, it was dug in the... uh, uh, I think it was 20, uh, 1917 that uh, Reisner worked there, George mm-hmm. Reisner from Harvard. And um, he did a lot, quite a bit there. But in typical Reisnerian fashion, he didn't record much. And uh, some of it is reworking his stuff. Um, I think I've identified a structure 
that does not appear on his maps um, that that could be part of the pyramid complex. Um, architecture, it's a very interesting pyramid because uh, it was built as a complete pyramid and then expanded. And so you can see at the top, the top of the first pyramid, um, and then it was expanded. So architecture, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. So, uh, yeah, and then uh, there is a, a temple of some sort that um, for the last three years, not this past year, obviously, but uh, the three previous years, the University of Arizona was working there, and they're the ones that invited me to come work and to expand. But yeah, they were doing very interesting work actually in another pyramid. Uh, my colleague, who is the director, uh, Dr. Pierce Paul Cressman, is a marine archaeologist, and here he is working in the desert uh, under a pyramid in a chamber filled with water, uh, pumping air from outside uh, into their breathe, breathing apparatus and with their goggles and their um, finding little things uh, in, in in the burial chambers. So all of that is was not there when Reisner worked there, but then he didn't take everything either and didn't dig all the every pyramid. Well, it sounds fascinating, like a really interesting project and really unique. I mean, something that um, I, I certainly am not aware of. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing the results. You sort of eat your heart out, Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> Underwater archaeology, he's, he's not gotten there yet. <laughs> Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And it was also, of course, a great privilege to work on the book with you. Yeah, I'm sure it's selling like hotcakes, right? Yeah, let's hope. (laughs) Yeah, I want to thank you, Jim, also for for being on the podcast. We're really excited about the the direction of this. And this is exactly the type of topics that we hope our listeners will enjoy and and, uh, getting informed on these crucial questions and what could be more central than thinking about the the, the, the Exodus event. And as you said, it's just so central to both the Old Testament and the New Testament because of its connections with, uh, with the Gospels and, of course, uh, Easter, as you mentioned. So we're so thankful that you, uh, that you joined today and we look forward to uh, your future projects and maybe having you on again down the line. So thank you again. And uh, this is On Script Biblical World Podcast, and we hope to uh, catch you again next time. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.